they have this experience that, um, to, to, to paraphrase Pirkei Avos, um, the Alter Rebbe received the Torah at Sinai and wrote it down in the Tanya, um, as if like the time just drops out of nowhere, and like so like, it's, like you know it's like you know we have like the Chumash and the rest of Tanakh and we have the Gemara and we have like you know your regular classic stuff and then all of a sudden the Tanya just comes out of nowhere and the Tanya has all of its own weird strange ideas and somehow that's supposed to be like you know the core essence of everything in Judaism, which for religion that's very big on maintaining tradition that sounds weird right. So for those of us who grow up in Chabad, it's like, yeah, Tanya, it's like a fundamental book, just like, you know, the Gemara, which is weird, because, you know, the Tanya's written in the late 1700s. Um, and for those people outside Chabad, it's like, those Chabad people, like, have a really strange relationship with the Tanya, as if it's just, like, authoritative on its own, without any larger context. So I figured, a good thing to start before we do the Tanya, on an overview of the Tanya, is to give some background to the Tanya. And the structure of what we're going to do is like this. First, we're going to start with the issue in Torah that Tanya is addressing. So I want to, I'm going to frame the Tanya as addressing an issue in Torah, like any issue in Torah. Then we're going to do an overview of the actual structure of the book. And then we're going to look at the primary pieces of um, Torah that the Alter uses to kind of structure the ideas around. So the idea here is that we're going to hopefully see that the Tanya didn't just fall out of heaven with no context. Okay? Um, at this point, I really wish we had the papers because then everyone can see the papers. So let's see if they are... Okay. So, um, I'm going to start as if you all have the papers and then you'll get them. And, okay. So there is a Parsha. A Parsha, for those of you who do not know, has two meanings. One is the weekly Torah reading. We call it a Parsha. But the more classic meaning originally of Parsha was a section of the Torah. If you look in a Torah scroll, you will find that there are paragraph breaks. So between every two paragraphs breaks, between every two paragraph breaks is called a Parsha. And kind of like a, the whole chapter really came from the Christians. So there is a Parsha. Some Parshas are very long, some Parshas are very short. There is a Parsha in the book of Devarim Deuteronomy. Okay, there's... Five, there's three pieces of paper, so the last page you should have. Okay, yeah. so, so just make sure you, make sure you have you know, don't, you know, the whole packet. Oh, they're stapled. That's even more convenient. Okay, so there's a Parsha. We're going to learn this Parsha. It's a short Parsha. And this, again, because it's in the book of Devarim, the book of Deuteronomy, that means it's Moshe Rabbeinu talking to the people at the end of Moshe's life. The last month of Moshe's life, Moshe gave a very long speech, which we know as the book of Deuteronomy. And he says as follows. Um, I'm, I'm, the Pesukim I'm going to read in Hebrew because I think they're important. But everything else I'm probably just going to do in English. This commandment that I'm commanding you today, it is not beyond you, it's not beyond you, it's not distant. It is not in the heavens that you would have to say, Who will arise to heaven and take it for us and teach us so that we may do it? It is not across the ocean. Lamer to say, Who's going to travel across the ocean? And take it and teach it to us. We can do it. Rather, the matter is very close to you. In your mouth, in your heart to do it. So this, that's the whole chapter. That's the whole Parsha. 
what's the theme here? What's Moshe telling the Jewish people? The Torah, right, that I'm giving you, this mitzvah I'm giving you, it is accessible. It is close to you. It is within your reach. And again, look at the context. It's not beyond you. It's not distant. You don't need someone else to go get it for you, right? It's there for you, for the taking. Good? Now, there's a, the, the, the classic question that all of the commentators on the Chumash address is, this commandment, right, is a very vague term, right? What is Moshe referring to? Okay. There are two classic approaches that I put on the sheet, Rashi and the Ramban. I'm sure you've all heard of Rashi, yes? Is anyone here who has not heard of Rashi? Okay. The Ramban, I'm not going to assume everyone has heard of. The Ramban was a Spanish um, rabbi. Um, he lived in the kingdom of, I think it was called Castile, before Spain was united, the Christian kingdom. Um, he was a halachic authority, a commentator on the Talmud, a commentator on the Chumash, a Kabbalist. Um, he, did, he wrote, he was the person who first debated the Christians in an open debate with free speech, um, which he won the debate but had to flee Spain, so he ended up in Israel. He founded a shul, a synagogue, which is in the old city. You can still go to it. Um, very, very famous. Um, and the Ramban is considered to be like, if Rashi is like the first commentator one learns, the Ramban is in running for the second. Words, one could argue the Ramban or the Ibn Ezra, but he's like, you know, after you've kind of learned Chumash with Rashi, the good place to go is the Ramban. So, and it's really always interesting to like see how they approach things differently. So they have a dispute. Rashi says that this mitzvah, this commandment, is a reference to the entire Torah. Now remember, we're saying this close. How is the entire Torah close? Because it was given, written, and oral. Meaning, who, is the, who are we addressing? We're addressing a Jew in a normal context. Normal context is a Jew gets a Jewish education, right? So he has a book, the Chumash, with God's word, right? And he has had teachers who have told him how that word is meant to be understood and practiced. Just one second, right? And so now it's up to you. If you want to like pay attention to your teachers and your parents and listen to them, you can do the Torah. And if you don't, that's up to you, right? That's basically what Moshe is saying. It's like, I brought the Torah down. I've explained it to you. So now you can either do it or not do it, but that's up to you. That's basically how Rashi understands what this is saying. Yes? Um, when the Pasuk uses the word mitzvah, is it using it in the very specific sense of one of the 613? So Rashi is saying no. Rashi is saying his mitzvah is, is just generic for the entire Torah. That this mitzvah, this commandment is the entire Torah. Okay, so according to Rashi, it wouldn't be counted. Right, Whatever right, right. Right, this verse is referencing the, all of it. It's like, I brought down, the, here's the book. Here's what it means. I've taught it to you. Yeah, it's like, you know, after you've, you know, been educated. So the same, let's use a simple example. Right? If you've been educated properly about how to keep Shabbos, it's up to you whether you keep Shabbos or not. You can do it if you want. If you don't, don't. But don't complain that it's beyond you. You learned the laws. You were educated. You have a book there for reference. Make sense? Okay. The Ramban, Nachmanides, as you know in English, he disagrees. And he actually says that this verse is a reference to the mitzvah of tshuva. And that what this is saying is that regardless of the circumstances one finds themselves, they can always do tshuva because they can always return to Hashem, confess their sins, and follow the commandments. Now, if you look at the last verse, the rather matter is very close to you in your mouth and your heart to do it, you notice it mentions three things, your mouth, your heart, and doing. And if you'll notice the Ramban, which again, I've paraphrased the Ramban here, he says you can confess your sins, return to God, 
and do the commandments, right? So it fits very nicely, right? Even if you've, even if you've gone into exile and even if you've been, even God has cast you out of the land, doesn't matter the circumstance, you can always confess your sins, return to God and start observing the mitzvahs. It's not beyond you. Okay. That fits very nicely, right? And that's kind of where I want you to now think back. What's problematic about Rashi's interpretation? Rashi says it's a reference to the whole Torah. And what does it mean? The entire Torah has been taught to you, right? There's a written text, an oral explanation. You've been educated. So now you can do it, right? What's problematic in that? If you look in the text, you wouldn't see the problem with, if you were to look at Rashi. Remember the Ramban said that you can do tshuva, you can confess your sins, and now follow the commandments, right? So he's accounted for the entire verse. If you look at Rashi, has Rashi accounted for the entire verse? He's accounted for the idea of doing the mitzvahs, right? You've been educated in how to do the mitzvahs, right? But the verse mentions something else. What does it mention? It mentions that it's, well, that's the fact that you can do it, right? It's close to you. What is close to you about this, about this mitzvah? What's close to you is in your mouth and in your heart to do it. Now, if the Torah, if you've been educated with the Torah, the Torah has been given to you, it's been brought down from Sinai by Moshe and it's been taught to the people or through the generations, been taught to each generation, right? And you've received that education. Can you do the mitzvahs if you want? Sure. Can you do the mitzvahs that are verbal in nature if you want? Sure. Because you know how to do them, right? What is part of that verse is not being accounted for? I'm not going to tell you. You're going to have to look. And if we spend the next half hour you guys gazing at it, it is, you know, a class for adults. So you have to, like, you know, use your minds. Think about why the Ramban's explanation fits nicely into the verse, and Rashi has a bit of a problem. Yeah. How does... There's no reference to... Your mouth, you could stretch and say there's verbal mitzvahs, right? But is Rashi's explanation address anything about your heart? Very nice. There's a book, and you explain it to me, and now I understand it. So now I know how to put on tefillin, how to keep Shabbos, how to make brachas, how to say Shema, what's forbidden in terms of the laws of Lashon Hara, of, of speaking ill of others, right? Does that in any way bring anything to my heart? No. Now, if you go like the Ramban and you say it's referring to tshuva, well, I mean, tshuva is fundamentally return to God in one's heart. That's associated with confession, which is verbal, and, the, and now practicing the mitzvahs, the doing of it, right? So Rashi, Rashi's interpretation that this mitzvah, which is close to you, is the actual totality of Judaism, doesn't really fit nicely into the verse because how is it close in your heart? Okay, so you see that question jumps out at you if you pay attention? Now what we're going to do is we're going to read a paragraph from the Tanya that I created personally myself by cutting and pasting two different parts of the Tanya together. The first part is from the title page and the second part is from chapter 17. But I pasted it together because um, in this you will basically see where the, what the Alter Rebbe is doing with the entire Tanya. This book is based on the verse, rather the matter is very close to you in your mouth and in your heart to do it. Okay, so we have, right away we know that we're, we're not dropping out of like the middle of nowhere. Like everything in Torah, we're basing ourselves, we have a pasuk, we have a verse that we want to understand. 
And the, the book is explaining clearly how it is exceedingly near in a long and short way with the aid of the Holy One, blessed be he. So apparently this verse needs explanation, right? The fact that this is exceedingly near or very close, that needs to be explained, right? At first glance, this is now shifting to chapter 17, in your heart seems contrary to our experience, that it is not a close thing to change one's heart from worldly desires to a sincere love of God. In other words, does Judaism make claims on our emotional life that we should feel certain ways? It's a yes or no question. It does. Is Rashi, does the verse say that those emotional claims, Bilavavcha, within your heart, are close to you. They're near to you. And again, the context of near to you is it's not beyond you. It's not far. Not, you need someone else to go and get it for you. You can do it yourself. Right? And telling me that I've been taught the written oral Torah doesn't really address how I all of a sudden have the ability to control to control myself on that emotional level to meet whatever the Torah's claims are on my heart. Okay? Now, do you think the author was the first person who noticed this problem? No. No. In fact, there's an earlier work named the Chayva Salavaves, which is usually called the duties of the heart or the obligations of the mind or you can translate however you want. And the entire book is predicated on the idea that Jews spend a lot of time focusing on the claims that the Torah makes on their actions what I'm allowed to do, not allowed to do, on their speech, what I'm allowed to say, what I'm not allowed to say, what I have to say. And very little time is focused on the obligations that are addressed at how we feel, our attitudes. And he has a whole book about that. I mean, this is from the medieval era, right? And this is not a new, like, that's just one example. What the Alter Rebbe is honing on a particular verse that it's not just that these obligations exist, but the Torah is somehow equating them Right, with the rest of our obligations that they're totally under our control. We can do them. We don't need someone else to come along and, I'm going to use this word, inspire us and motivate us to love God. We somehow have the ability to do that ourselves, the same way we have the ability to comply with all of the other parts of the Torah that affect our behavior. Okay? Now, if I frame it that way, is this very clear that... that in a certain sense, Tanya is just following in the standard tradition of biblical commentary that you have a verse, the verse is supposed to mean something, it's supposed to make sense. <laughs> and, you know, there's reasons to understand the verse is referring specifically to tshuva, in which case the verse makes a lot more sense directly. But if you understand the verse referring to the totality of Torah, it's very hard to understand how you're equating the emotional, psychological obligations that God places on us with everything else. And the altar feels that this is such a serious question that he's not just going to give him a small little commentary. He's actually going to write an entire book. Now, here's the question. Why write an entire book? Why not just like, give like a short explanation? Very layered. This is a simple answer. There's a very big difference between answering a question in principle and guiding someone as to how to implement that, what you're saying. Now, granted, the Alter Rebbe is still very terse. We've learned Tanya together, so we know that it's still very terse. But the purpose of writing a book is that the Alter Rebbe feels in explaining this, he doesn't want to just simply give the answer. He actually wants that answer to be implementable. So he has to structure it in such a way that you have a program you could follow. Right? That's why he says it's going to be ex explained um, 
clearly. Um, good? So we have a verse. The verse needs to be understood. And the issue is, how is it really up to us, individually, ourselves, not someone else doing it for us, to meet our obligations to God that are the obligations placed on our heart? Good? Okay. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to do an overview of the Tanya. The Tanya has, the first section, which is the section we're going to be focusing on, has 53 chapters. Does anyone know the significance of 53? 53 years in prison? He was 53 days in prison, but that, that's reversed. There were 53 days in prison because the Tanya was 53 chapters. But why did he make the Tanya 53 chapters? There's 53 weekly Torah readings. Now, that's a little bit, um, shall we say, audacious, right? God writes a book and, and, and it's split into 53 sections. You write a book and decide to split into 53 sections. Okay? Was the altar ever the first person to do this type of thing? No. So you might have heard of a man named the Rambam Maimonides. He wrote a book. You know what he called his book? Mishnah Torah. You know what Mishnah Torah literally means? The second Torah. So there's the Bible, the written Torah, the Tanakh, and there's my book. And he's like, quick, like, like, if you have those two things, you're good to go. Because you've got the written Torah, and my book is a compendium of all you need to know of the oral Torah, so good to go. In other words, there is a long tradition, um, and it's always contentious when someone does it, of someone trying to kind of capture the totality of the Torah in their own work. But the author is not unique in this. Okay? But, so he does make it 53 chapters. Now, it is interesting that in the, the Altarebbe wrote two editions of Tanya. There was the first edition, which was never published. Sorry, okay. It was not published in his lifetime. It was published, I don't know, 1970-something, I think, from manuscripts. And then there was the second edition, which was what the Altarebbe actually published. It's only in the second edition that there are 53 chapters. So they published it. This is going to be relevant to their two editions we go through. Now, what I've done is I've broken up the Tanya into basically kind of sections. Because what I want you to see is that, again, he doesn't just want to answer this question, how it's close to you. He wants to do it in such a way that you have an actionable program of how to actually do that. Okay. Before we go forward, I want to stop and, and, and point something out. There's a basic premise of Judaism, which is that God gives us commandments and we're supposed to obey them. The basic thing in Judaism. Probably the most basic thing in Judaism, right? That means if God gives us commandments and we're supposed to obey them, that means it's obviously within our power to obey them. So, do you really need a book telling us that we have the ability to obey God's commandments? I want you to think about that. Do we need a book telling us and explaining to us that we have the ability to obey God's commandments? If the basic premise of Judaism is God gives us commandments, we're supposed to follow it. No. You don't need a book. Okay? Which is why, arguably, although they, that book really doesn't exist in Judaism. The closest you get is philosophical discussions about free will in other books. But that's as close as you get. Why? Because, again, the very notion of God giving us commandments and the fact that we are obligated to keep those commandments implies that we have the ability to do so. Okay. 
Why is that? What, what was the Alter If you turn back again, what was the Alter Rebbe's issue why he wrote a whole book? Is because when we talk about emotional obligations, that seems to be going against our basic experience, right? If I tell you, light Shabbos candles, you can decide to obey, you could decide to not obey, right? You might have reasons you would or you wouldn't, right? But you can clear, it's, all, it's clear to us that you clearly can do that. Our experience matches the, the, the implicit assumption in the Torah. But if I tell you now, love Hashem, be in awe of His greatness, it's not like, like okay, I mean, how do I exactly do that? Right? So here we, have, here we have a problem between an implicit claim of the Torah and actually what goes on later to be an explicit claim, not that, right? That it's really up to us. That's the verse that actually makes that, that part explicit and our experience. And it's because of that that Alter feels you need a whole book. If it wouldn't be the conflict between our experience and this claim of the Torah, there's really no need for a book. Now, why am I spending a lot of time on this? Is it hard to keep Shabbos? Is it hard to keep kosher? Is it hard to keep a philosophy of family purity? Is it hard to put on tefillin every day? Are these things hard? Yes? No? What do you think? Yeah. They're objectively hard? Depends on the context. Depends on context. For some people, they're hard. For some people, they're easy. Sometimes they're more difficult. Sometimes they're less difficult, right? Okay. Life is full of things which are hard, right? If the thing, hard things are important, you do them. If they're not important, you don't do them. If you can't do the hard things, even when they're important to you, you fit into one of two categories, a child or a person who has some sort of disorder, right? Let's think about that, right? What's an important thing in life that's hard? Getting up in the morning, I would say, is, I wouldn't say is objectively hard for everybody. That's hard? Kids, yeah. What? Getting married for kids. Getting married. Here's something that's hard. How about how about working a full time job and paying a full time parent? That's objectively hard, right? Okay. Because a full time job means that you're working what eight hours a day, plus transportation, then parenting, right? Okay, that's hard, right? Makes a lot of physical and emotional demands. It's hard to do. Okay, fine. If it's important to you, you do it. Proof being many people do it. If it's not important to you, then you don't do it. Proof being many people choose not to do those things, right? They do one or they do the other or they do neither, right? What about people who, who it's important to them but they don't do those things? Then we say, well, either it's probably because they're not fully mature yet or there's something wrong that needs to be addressed, right? Someone who's important to them to hold down a full-time job and raise, and raise children, right? and is not able to do those things because they're too hard for them? How do we think about that? They're either not mature enough for that stage in life or they have some issue that needs to be addressed. Okay. So you don't need a, you don't need a Torah book to deal with that. Okay. Here, when you're talking about, you should, you should feel privileged to do a mitzvah. It's like, okay, I should feel privileged, but I don't feel privileged. It's not so easy to feel privileged to do a mitzvah. Like, now I, have, now I have something which, it's not just, it's n- not important enough to me. I don't even know where to begin. I don't know how to approach that. That's what the altar is trying to address. Okay, so it's very important that when, when a person's learning Tanya, that they realize that despite the emphasis on physical mitzvahs throughout the Tanya, which we will see, the Tanya is really not about doing mitzvahs. It is about how you feel. 
It's a book about a person's emotions, not about a person's behavior. If you would like a book motivating you to do mitzvahs, are there, in other words, that you don't think doing mitzvahs is important, um, I have a book for you. What would be a good book to motivate you to do mitzvahs? Messias Nope, better. Messias is not that motivating to do mitzvahs. What? Can you hand me a chumash, please? Just a full chumash, yeah. No, the full chumash over there, yeah. You might have not been paying attention to last week's Torah reading. No, sorry, sorry, two weeks ago. If you do not listen to me, if you do not perform, consider my, if you consider my decree loathsome, you reject my ordinances, you do not perform all of my commandments, then I will do the same to you. I will sign upon you panic, swelling lesions, burning fever, cause your eyes to long your souls to suffer, will sow your seeds in vain, your enemies will eat you, etc., etc., etc. And this goes on for a while. Such things as, um, I will bring upon you a sword. Um, I will break the staff of your bread. Ten women will break bread in one oven, they will bring it back by weight and they will eat it and they won't be satiated. I will despise you. Um, you will eat the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughters, okay? If all you're concerned about is why should I do the things that God said? He already said so. He runs the world and he doesn't, I mean, Jewish history is unfortunately full of large, bitter exile, right? So that is not the context of the Tanya. The context of the Tanya is a totally different thing, which is the feeling. God said, Moshe said, and God put in the Torah, it's close to you to belavavcha, to feel. Feel, Rashi says, in the context of the whole Torah. Just having knowledge doesn't make me feel. Okay, so the first 17 chapters are all about that. So what I've done is I've, I've put the topic and you'll see that I've bolded certain parts of the verse. So you can see how the explanation of the verse is developing. In the first 17 chapters, the altar was addressing that basic question. How is it close to you in your heart? That is what this first 17 chapters are about, which means in theory, the Tanya could have just been, how many chapters? 17. 17. Okay. For today, I will give you the basic explanation in one or two sentences. Um, and then as we move on in subsequent classes, we're going to revisit these things in greater detail. We're going to break each section into the chapters and see what the, how, how the ideas progress. The basic idea is this. You have a soul. A godly soul. And because you have a godly soul you are capable of comprehending God's greatness. And because you have a godly soul, your comprehension of God's greatness is emotionally stimulating. It, it's emotionally evocative. And therefore, by properly contemplating his greatness, you can develop sufficient emotions that at the very least provide motivation to do mitzvahs. Okay? So there's both an explanation of how it's close, but also limiting to what degree it's close. You have a soul. That soul enables you to genuinely comprehend God's greatness and in such a way that that is emotionally powerful. How powerful? 
to the degree that you are personally invested in doing his mitzvahs because you appreciate his greatness. That's it. Does that, are there greater spiritual experiences that are possibly available? Sure, but not necessarily. Is that close to you? What's close to you is the feelings that motivate mitzvah observance that stem from an, an awareness, a comprehension of God's greatness, and this is made possible by your godly soul. That's the 17 chapters of Tanya in like one short little synopsis. Okay? So what is going to be therefore the key to that? If we just think about that idea as just one single idea, what's the key therefore? Knowing you have a soul. Well, knowing you have a soul, I mean, to be honest, you don't really need to know you have a soul. Um, you know, if I, if, 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 do you know that you have a spleen? Do you know what a spleen does? Mm-hmm. It still works, right? Okay, so, you know, if you, it, it, you may need to know you have something in order to choose to, to use it, um, but you might be using it without even realizing it, right? So there, there's an interesting question of what, you know. You wouldn't think that that would motivate someone to do mitzvahs? Knowing they have a soul? But that's not what the altar said, was it? It's saying what's motivating you to do mitzvahs is the feelings you created. How did those feelings generate? Because your soul is emotionally affected by knowledge of God. How do you have genuine knowledge of his greatness? Because your soul is capable of that. In other words, the soul is giving you a capacity, an ability. It's not the reason to do the mitzvahs, is it? And this is all stemming from being aware of and contemplating his greatness, which means the key to everything is contemplating, contemplating his greatness. Um, so if you don't contemplate his greatness, it's not gonna work. And if you do, it will. Simple as that. If you contemplate his greatness and you're not moved properly emotionally to motive, to, that those emotions are, je- are, are, are motivating you and infusing vitality into your mitzvah observance, then apparently you're just not doing the contemplation right. You know? It's like if a person bakes a cake and the cake doesn't come out right, we assume that they didn't bake the cake properly. Kind of simple. Good? Then you have chapters 18 through 25 where the Alter Rebbe pays attention to the verse and he says, wait a minute, wait a minute. The verse says that it is very close to you. Very close means that it should be available to a wider range of people. And the Alter Rebbe's issue is that not everybody is truly capable of contemplating God's greatness. Granted, the soul makes it possible, but not everybody really can tap into that ability. So if it's the soul that makes it possible to contemplate God's greatness, and it's that awareness of his greatness that, inspi- that motivates you, that arouses emotion within you, and contemplation is not really a feasible option for every Jew, it's only a feasible option for the average Jew, and the verse says it's very close, I need something that is more accessible, something that is more attainable. And what the Alter Rebbe therefore shifts to is a different idea, that there is an innate love of God. And if you know how to properly integrate that innate love of God into your psyche, that can become the motivating drive for your Torah and your mitzvahs. Okay? So the first approach is that your soul enables you to contemplate his greatness, and that's what creates the emotions. And the second approach, which is more accessible, is that you already have automatically by virtue of the soul, a, a innate love of Hashem. 
And if you develop the proper relationship with that part of yourself, that will provide the proper drive and motivation to do the mitzvahs. Okay? So option one is to create emotion through contemplation. Option two is to discover the emotions that you already have but didn't know of. Yes? Um, I feel like you explained the reason why the author of felt the need to write a whole book is because there's this very, there's this conflict between our experience Mm-hmm. It is not easy to be to have feelings towards Hashem. Correct. And and our experience. Right. Whereas everything else is an action. Which you right. said if we can't take an action, it's either we're not mature. Or there's something wrong. Or it's disorder. Right. Is, you know. But um. I feel like we're not answering the question because the author of us saying, you're giving a caveat as you go through it, you're framing enough emotions so you can fulfill right. the mitzvahs. So wait, it doesn't wait. look like the author of us really addressing Wait, 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 wait. You're, you are correct, which why the book continues. You are thinking like the author of us thinks. Okay. Yes, you, 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 you have anticipated why the book doesn't end at, at, at chapter 25. Now, at this point, the Alter departs from the verse because there is a problem. Everything in that the Alter says depends on maintaining a state of joy. In other words, everything has its prerequisites. Everything has its conditions in which it works. Okay? Whether you are attempting to utilize your soul's capacity to really fathom God's greatness and as a result, create emotions that motivate you towards mitzvah observance. Or you are trying to discover the part of your soul which already has an innate love for Hashem and try to integrate that into your psyche and into your life. Regardless of which one you are doing, you cannot do either of those, act, those kind of mental activities when you are not in a state of joy. So you need to maintain a state of joy in order for this to work, okay? Similar to the idea if you do not eat and sleep, you're not gonna be very functional on a physiological level, same idea, right? So you need to be able to learn how to maintain a state of joy. So the Alter Rebbe devotes chapters 26 to 34 to explaining the necessity and how to maintain a constant state of joy. Why wouldn't it come first? Because... When do, you, when do you need the knowledge? In other words, the Alter Rebbe is addressing a question. He addressed the question. Now, there's an, now, if you were to then try to say, okay, well, that was very nice, I tried and it failed, which is, well, I mean, obviously it failed because... In other words, if the Alter Rebbe was starting with a program from the beginning, he was writing this just as a program and not an exposition to understand a biblical concept, he might have started with joy. And it is not unheard of amongst Hasidim to actually start teaching Tanya from chapter 26. Um, I, I think that the first time, in fact, that I learned Tanya from someone who was not my father in some kind of ordered way, he started from chapter 26. So it is, it is, it is and by the way, there are people who start chapter, Tanya teaching Tanya from chapter 18, also for, for similar reasons, right? You know, if one, if the, if the first approach is not as accessible to everybody, maybe we should just start teaching people the, you know, the more accessible approach. Right? So there are arguments to make how you should teach the Tanya.
But as an explanation of the biblical verse, this order makes sense, right? We had a question, we answered the question, but the answer is, is not completely satisfying because it doesn't account for a nuance in the text that it says, kariv ma'oid, it's very close. Once we've finished explaining the verse, you're left with a practical problem that it's not actually implementable, it's not practical unless you have joy, so we need to address that if we want this to actually work. Okay, now we have a conceptual problem, which is what you raised. Why the emphasis on emotions that motivate mitzvah observance rather than emotions per se? Because part of the Alter Rebbe's answer, both in the first section, chapters 1 through 17, and chapters, the second approach, chapters 18 through 25, was that as long as you get to a place where your emotions are motivating mitzvah observance, then, you, uh, then you've succeeded because that's all Moshe was promising you in that verse. Now, the evidence for that is the end of the verse. It says, in your heart to do it. And, and, and um, in the Hebrew, it's a, little bit, it, it's a little bit clearer because it says, in your mouth and in your heart, and doesn't say in your actions. It says, la say say, to do it, for the sake of doing it. So the altar says, we clearly see that the, that the notion that it, it is up to you and it's within your power to cultivate these kind of emotional experiences is being limited to the emotions that drive our mitzvah observance, nothing more. So any emotional or spiritual experience beyond that wasn't promised to be karev to you. In other words, some things still are rechaika, distant, and beyond you. But then you can ask the question, well, I mean, if, if, the, if the emotional service of God is valuable, why is it being restricted only to how it plays a role within the midst of observance? And so Alter Rebbe devotes three chapters, 35 to 37, based on a passage in Zohar explaining the centrality of the mitzvahs. Now, once you do that, that creates an obvious question. Once you explain the centrality of the mitzvah, now we revert back. What's the problem? If the mitzvah is so central, why do I even need the emotion? So I want to say this again a few times so everyone gets it. We started off with a question. I was promised by Moshe, and God put it in the Torah, so it's true, that I don't need anybody else to inspire me on the emotional level. The Judaism, that Judaism's claims on my heart that I should love Hashem, that I should fear Hashem, etc., etc., that's kariv, that's up to me. I can do it. And Adam says, yeah, because you have a soul which can contemplate God, or you have a soul which already has an innate love of God, and, and I can show you how you can use that capacity or tap into that part of yourself. And of course, you need to be in a state of joy for this to work. Great, fine. But you're only going to get, you're only, you're only guaranteed to be, to be able to get to emotions that motivate mitzvah observance. Nothing higher, nothing beyond that. And the reason is because mitzvahs are really the only thing that truly matters. You say, well, wait a minute. If mitzvahs are the only thing that truly matters, do I need the proper motivation to do a mitzvah? I could do mitzvahs simply out of habit, right? I could do mitzvahs because I don't want to eat my children. That's what the verse says, right? There's lots of reasons to do mitzvahs. It doesn't have to be out of devotion to God, out of love of God, or fear of God, right? And if, and if it's so central, as the Zohar explains, the act of the mitzvah, that, that we only need emotions for that, then why do we need the emotions at all? Which is why chapters 38 to 40, the Alter Rebbe kind of goes back and says, okay, we, we do need to explain why you even need the, the, the love and fear of the emotions at all. So the Alter Rebbe has taken the person on kind of a, a, a roller coaster. The person starts off thinking, my emotional life is a central part of Judaism, right? And it's something I'm supposed to be able to control. And what happens? 
the Alter Rebbe in explaining that ends up shifting the central focus of Judaism entirely to the actions of the mitzvahs to the point that you're left with the question, why even invest any effort into the emotional part of Judaism at all? Okay. Now that he's got done that in, in those, three cha- those chapters, 38, 39, and 40, the next section he starts to now actually start to, to really articulate the full range of love and fear, which are the primary emotions, the full emotional experience. There's a, um, there was a psychologist named William James. Has anyone heard of William James? William James is an American psychologist. He's very, very interesting. Um, so he wrote a book called The Varieties of Religious Experience. What is it about? The variety of... So he, he did a... He was a psychologist in the, the, the early... I think the early, early 20th century, late 1900s, something like that. Or late, late 1800s. And he did a lot of uh, interviewing people and research and about their different kinds of religious experience. And then just like, you know, psychologists study pathologies and they study behaviors and they study memory. He studied religious experience and categorized different kinds of religious experiences. And he made a whole taxonomy and how it works and whatever, it was very interesting. Um, there was a, a, a very interesting Jew named Hill Zeitlin. Hill Zeitlin was born a Chabad Chassid. And in his youth, he became a heretic, like a genuine, genuine heretic, like anti-religious. He was an intellectual, like wrote scathing things against God and Torah and mitzvahs and Judaism and like whatever. Um, and then he became a Baal Tshuva. <laughs> then, okay. what? I'll tell you when I was a minute. Um, and he became a chassid, like a real, real, real chassid. And he wrote, he turned his pen towards defending Judaism and he wrote some, he wrote an introductory work into chassidus. He wrote... Um, a defense of the authenticity. There's all sorts of interesting things. Fascinating person. Um, when they rounded up, I forgot where he was, when the Nazis rounded up the Jews where he lived, the story is that he insisted on going onto the trains to the death camps um, in his talus and Tzfilin clutching a copy of the Zohar. He refused to part with it. Um, so he, um, the reason why I'm bringing this up is he says it was a shame that William James only interviewed Christians and never learned Chabad Hasidus because there's a whole area of the varieties of religious experience that William James never touched upon because he didn't have access to other types of religion. He only interviewed primarily Christians. He was an American, right? And basically, Lahavdil, what the Altima does in chapters 41 through 50, he goes through the variety of experiences and the proper place in your service of God. Not a generic, oh, love and fear. What, different kinds of love, different kinds of fear what their value is, which comes first, which comes second, what you should aim for, the, the, you know. And so you, you end up that rather than just a generic, a feel of devotion to Hashem, a love for Hashem, a fear of Hashem, it becomes very concretized, the entire variety and range, the different forms and, and, and the unique significance of each one. Now, does that mean every single person is going to be able to have all those? No. But... You know, if you have a map, you can kind of navigate where you are, where you need to be, what the next best step is. So once the Alter Rebbe has established that despite the centrality of mitzvahs, the love and fear are nonetheless critical, he then goes on to elaborate on love and fear as a topic of himself. And then finally, he revisits that issue about the centrality of physical mitzvahs by, by further explaining that passage of the Zohar. So if you really think about it, you can really sum it up that the Alter Rebbe focuses on 
three things. How it's close to you to have these emotions through contemplation. How it's close to you, it's very close because you have an innate love you can tap into. And that, and the proper understanding of the centrality of physical mitzvahs in one's emotional life. And that's all based on the verse. It's very close in your heart to do it. Could you repeat the third thing? The third thing is that all of the person's emotional life is really centered around not the emotional life itself, but it's supposed to be centered around the physical mitzvah observance. And again, all of that is rooted in the verse. Okay? Along the way, he has to do some other stuff, such as acknowledging the necessity of maintaining joy, understanding the full complexity of, of emotions that can be generated towards God in their proper place, developing a deeper understanding of the significance of the physical mitzvahs, right? But that's basically the outline of the Tanya. Now, I, I skipped one little bit at the end of this chart, which is chapter 32. When the Altib originally wrote Tanya, chapter 32 did not exist. In the, in the second edition, which is what he published, he added a, f- a bunch of stuff, um, but one thing that he added is chapter 32. Chapter 32 is weird. If you read Tanya, chapter 31, and then you read chapter 33, the end of 31, flows immediately into the beginning of 33. There's a, it's a part of the whole idea about joy. But because he, parenthe- not parenthetically, because he mentions an idea that one's primary value should be for their soul at the expense of one's body, I'm gonna emphasize again, at the expense of one's body, so that the fact that your body is, gets the short end of the stick shouldn't bother you because you primary focus on the soul, he then, takes that as the key to what it really means to love your fellow Jew and why loving your fellow Jew is so central to Judaism. And so it's kind of like an isolated thing. Um, it's also, I'll just mention, note that every mention of our relationship with other people only is in the second printed edition of Tanya, not the original manuscript. So other sections of Tanya where it starts talking about how you should treat other people was not originally part of it. Now, if you think about it, it makes a certain kind of sense because... What's the Tanya meant to explain? How you're supposed to have emotions towards who? Towards Hashem. Towards Hashem. Right? It was only, this is what I heard from older Chassidim, is it was only in the Al-Qaeda's reconsidering that people would not appreciate the ramifications, implications as applies to their fellow Jew, that the Al-Qaeda felt the need to spell those out as well. Okay. So that's, gives you some kind of sense Right, that it's not just like, ooh, let's, there's a thing called the tzaddik, there's a thing called the soul. Right? The, the, it, it all shows up from somewhere. Okay, now, you don't just get to make stuff up, okay? That's the rule. So if the author is going to start using a bunch of terms and, and, and concepts, they need to come from somewhere. It's true that we do have a notion in Judaism that um, people who are mystics gain new insights that were never revealed before. But those new insights are new ways of seeing old traditions. You don't get to invent things from, from thin air. Okay? If you want to think about it, just the simple analogy of light, everything's in the room already, but if you turn on the light, you can see it clearly. That's all somebody can do. In other words, if, if I were to come and say, I have this new Torah idea. And you say, well, 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 you know, where is it from? What's the source? You say, oh, I just came up with it myself. Well, that, that doesn't count. If I can shed a new light on a piece of Talmud, on a piece of scripture, right, that 
has merit. So how the Alter is going to address these issues, right? He's going to have to ground himself in traditional Torah texts. And so what do I have with the rest of this? Are not the sum total of all of the, but the basic ones that at least frame how the Alter is going to start thinking about this issue, which we are not going to finish in the next 13 minutes, but we're still going to go through them. Okay. The first is a Gemara from the Tractate of Nida. Okay. I am not, do not, not responsible for these translations. I took them off of Safaria with the exception of the <coughs> Zohar. The Zohar I did myself during my breakfast break. So, you know, you'll, you'll apologize for the typos on that. I couldn't find an English copy of the Zohar to just copy and paste. Okay. Now, uh, you, you've heard of the idea that um, when a child is in the womb, they, are, they learn the whole Torah. So that's actually a long section of Talmud. Um, I thought about putting the whole thing, but I realized it takes several pages in, with the translations. So it describes the state. There's a long section of Talmud tract, and it describes the state of the fetus in the womb. At the end of that description, it says as follows. And a fetus does not leave the womb until the angel administers an oath to it. As it's stated, that to me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear. So there's a verse from Yeshai, from Isaiah, that says, every knee has to bow to God and every tongue has to swear to God. Well, that's very clear what that's talking about, right? So the way this is interpreted in the oral tradition is that to me every knee shall bow, this refers to the day of one's death. As it's stated, all those who go down to dust shall kneel before him. Okay, this is a classic um, example of Midrash. You have a verse which is ambiguous. You assert the verse means something by drawing an analogy to another verse <coughs> from somewhere else in an entirely different context, right? So it says, everybody's going to kneel to God, right? That's very vague. But then you have another verse describing death as going down to dust. Well, going down to dust sounds like what? When, when do people go down to dust? When they die. So basically, right, everybody is going to have to die whether they like it or not because who runs the world? God runs the world. Okay, but then what's the other part of the verse? Every tongue shall swear. Every tongue shall swear. This is a reference to the day of one's birth. As it is stated in the description of a righteous person in Psalms, again, the same idea. You have a verse that's ambiguous. You assert it means something, and then you draw an analogy to a verse somewhere else entirely. He who has clean hands, a pure heart, and has not taken my name in vain, and has not sworn deceitfully. Okay? In other words, this is describing a person who merits to ascend to the mountain of God, which is a euphemism for Gan Eden. So after you die, do you go to the mountain of God? It depends. Do you have clean hands? Do you have a pure heart? Have you avoided taking God's name in vain? And have you not sworn falsely? Now, that's implying that everybody has taken an oath. Have you taken an oath? Do you remember ever taking an oath? As general Jews avoid taking oaths, right? So what is the oath that everyone t- takes? That's the, referring to the oath that is taken right at the moment of birth. And what is the oath that the angel ministers to the fetus? Okay, now I've underlined, this is literally the opening line of the Tanya. Be righteous and do not be wicked. And even if the entire world says to you, you are righteous, consider yourself wicked. And know that the Holy One, blessed be he, is pure. His ministers are pure. The soul he gave you is pure. If you preserve it in purity, well, but if not, I shall take it from you. Now the altar doesn't quote the, he only quotes one little part, which is? The instructive part. Notice he only quotes the part of the oath which is instructive. Be righteous. Don't be wicked. 
And if everyone tells you you're righteous, you should still consider yourself wicked, right? How many instructions do you have there? Three. Three things, right? So there is a Talmudic teaching that every single Jew at the moment of birth was given three instructions. And not just instructions, but they had to swear that they were going to keep those things, right? Which is, be righteous, don't be wicked. And if everyone tells you you're righteous, you should still consider yourself wicked. And that is how the Altar frames this, this entire discussion. Okay? We have to understand what those three instructions are. Now, what is the obvious question on this? Is the obvious question, yeah? That's the Altarebus problem. Clearly, the angel in charge of this oath understands that being righteous is not synonymous with not being wicked. And this becomes key to the entire Tanya. It's not the same thing as being righteous and not being wicked. It's possible to not be wicked and fail to be righteous. That's an important starting point, right? In fact, Altar doesn't even ask the question. He just states it. And only later on in Tanya, chapter 14, even, even he, in chapter 14, he says, and now we can understand why there's these, this redundant expression. But the redundancy is so obvious. Okay? All right? So again, setting aside whatever the Altar explanation is, it is apparently a classical Jewish idea, because I have a piece of Talmud that says so, that what? That I cannot reduce being righteous to simply not being wicked. Those are not the same thing. Again, what exactly the difference is? That, that he explains. Okay, the other thing that's interesting, it says, even if everyone tells you you're righteous, you should consider yourself wicked. wicked which, on its face, I would take as a statement of humil- or instruction to be humble, right? You know, don't assume you've achieved the ultimate or something like that. Okay. The altar, but by the way, you'll notice he, he I mentioned this before, he drops out the, uh, the motivational part at the end. So that's, that's actually going to be a theme. The altar Rebbe is really not interested in motivating people. So he, he, he only quotes things that he feels are instructive and informative, nothing motivational. Um, why would he do that? Real change. What kind of a person is the Alter Rebbe addressing? A motivated, a motivated person. It's like, yeah. <laughs> you, you came to me with the complaint that the verse says you can do it. So your only question is how to do it, right? Your only question is not do you want to do it? Are you committed to doing it? Your question is simply, how is this really something I can do? If your issue is a motivational issue, explicitly is the Alta ever going to address that? So this is going to be very important. People sometimes learn Tanya, and sometimes, but why would I want to be close to God? Why would I want to do the mitzvahs? By the way, those are two different questions, right? In terms of why you might want to do the mitzvahs, I, I think I mentioned that earlier, right? God has a bit of a temper. Um, in terms of why you want to be close to God, I don't know, like, you know, you're the one that showed up to this Tanya class. I mean, you must have your reasons, right? So it's very important. The Alta like, it, 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 it's almost... It's, you know, if you, if, you have, if you haven't studied other things, you don't realize it, but it, but it really stands out a lot when you study other works that the altar like, omits almost every kind of motivational aspect. 
And if he doesn't, like there's a few exceptions, you start asking yourself, like, why did he, apparently he understands that not as a motivational thing, but as something informative. Okay. Now, we're now on page two. This is a short source. Rabbi Shimon said, be not wicked in your own esteem, which is fancy for saying that you should not think of yourself as a bad person, right? Now we have a problem. What's our problem? You should, think, you should think of yourself as wicked. And re- so, right, we have two classic teachings that conflict. Okay? So, there must be, in one sense, it is necessary and proper to consider myself wicked. And in some other sense, it is wrong and inappropriate. Okay? And I think we all can see immediately how that becomes a very relevant topic in our lives. Let me ask you a question. Don't answer it. Are you a bad person? What was your gut? You, everyone had a gut answer to that question, right? Does anyone want to share their gut answer out loud? Yes? No? Why not? Because bad. Well, I, I'm going to argue like this. Because it doesn't really matter which one you answered, you come off looking bad, right? Because if you come up saying, I'm a good person, it's like, what? You are totally ignorant of all of your flaws, all of your failings, all of the, all your, you, like, 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 what? I'm a, uh, sorry, and then you're a bad person? Like, I mean, I mean, you, you can't, there has to be some notion of nuance and complexity, right? Okay. And apparently there is. That whatever that oath was about considering yourself a, a, a bad person, um, it's something that doesn't contradict the idea that you shouldn't consider yourself to be a wicked person. Now, I'll point out one other thing. The context in that, that oath was that you should consider yourself a wicked person even when the whole world tells you that you're righteous. Which means, even if objectively speaking you can't find anything really wrong, you should still not conclude that you're righteous. So we're talking about something deep and existential, right? We're not saying, oh, you should consider yourself bad because this is wrong or that's wrong. It doesn't say, and there are Talmudic statements that say that. Examine your actions, find your flaws. It doesn't say that. It says, even when everybody says everything's good, right? Still you should have what view of yourself? That you're you're wicked. And at the same time, you shouldn't consider yourself wicked. So again, there's this kind of self-image thing that has to be addressed as well, okay? So I'm going to put these two things. Number one, we have this question of what really differentiates being righteous from being wicked, and we have a mandate to do both. We took that upon ourselves to do both. And two, our self-image or self-conception has to be somewhat sophisticated. Even when we're doing everything right, we should see there's something wrong with us, but even though we see something wrong with us, we shouldn't really think that we're something wrong with us. Like, Do you see how the Alter Rebbe, by, by, by drawing on these sources, is shifting to a much more internalized approach to things. Right. Now, is he making, like, you just, you put this source, in juxtaposition to this source, you say, wait a minute, there's a deeper layer that needs to be addressed. Okay. Now, now we have a source, which is our first source of really defining what, what we mean by a righteous and wicked person. It was taught that Rabbi Yosegili says, the good inclination rules the righteous as it's stated, my heart is dead within me. The evil inclination rules the wicked, as it stated, transgression speaks to the wicked. There is no fear of God before his eyes. Middling. What are middling people? What? 
Baini, yeah. Baini means in the middle. I don't know, because I didn't take this translation. But people in the middle are ruled by both, as it is stated, because he stands at the right hand of the needy to save him from them that rule his soul. Okay, so we have three. So we have this sage who is a Tana, sage from Mishnah, and he says, here's a teaching, that what differentiates the righteous from the wicked is what? Which inclination rules them? And he brings a verse for each one. So, who is an example of a righteous person? No, no, in this piece of Talmud. Who's an example of a righteous person? I want the name. I know it's... No, I want his name. What? King David. How do we know? Because it says... His verse quotes Psalms, and that psalm was written by who? King David, and it's said in the first person. So King David says about himself, my heart is dead within me. What is the heart which is dead? That's a reference to his evil inclination. So apparently King David, and we realize, okay, we have a lot of complications here because we all know King David is a complicated figure, but that's not the Alter Ebbets problem. Okay, I want to be clear. I'm only going to try to... Like, there's going to be stuff that the Alter Ebbets address. However you make sense of the story of King David's life and this teaching... Setting that aside, Rabbi Yossi Galili clearly understands that King David was speaking the truth when he said his heart is dead within him. And the heart which is dead is not a reference to like, you know, the blood pumping that keeps him alive, but rather the evil inclination. And that is our prototypical example of a righteous person, someone who has no evil inclination. Now, we can discuss what does that mean, but that's, that's the, that is the characteristic um, what about a wicked person? Is someone who is ruled by? And notice here, what does it say that there's the evil being ruled by the evil inclination? How can you tell someone's being ruled by the evil inclination? By the way, this is again King David talking, but not about himself. There's no fear of God. There's no fear of God before his eyes. In other words, how do we know that you're ruled by your evil inclination? No. You're lacking in. Yeah, you're Shemaim, fear of God. If you had fear of God, so apparently, lacking fear of God is what makes you a wicked person. And then finally, we have these middling people, the in-between, and they're apparently ruled by both. Now, if they're ruled by both, what does that mean? Do they have fear of God? Sometimes. Yes, because they, they have to have fear of God, because if they don't have fear of God, they would immediately fall into the, the category of Russia, as the verse describes, Right? But they must have an evil inclination because they don't fit into the first verse, right? And their lives are messy. How can we tell? Because he, the verse used is because he stands at the right hand of the needy. Who is he? Hashem. Hashem. Who is the needy person? The middling people. The middling people. To save him from them who rule his soul. Who are the them? The inclination. The good and evil inclination, right? Who are tearing this person apart. And who is coming to the rescue? Hashem. Hashem. Okay, this is a classic piece of Gemara. Okay? So at this point, when I'm thinking righteous, wicked, and by the way, I've discovered apparently that there really isn't in between, right? What's the difference between a righteous and a wicked person? A righteous person lacks an evil inclination. It has been killed. A wicked person lacks fear of God and therefore by default is ruled by the evil inclination. And the middle person is somehow subject to the evil inclination but also subject to good inclination and needs God to kind of like keep him together. Yeah. Um, I have a question. Is it the evil inclination was killed or was not born into the person or could be either? 
Don't know. Well, to be fair, the verse says, the verse, the verse uses the word chalol. Chalol means, is a word that means corpse, like, like a dead body, or empty. So you could say my heart is empty within me, or my heart is like a corpse, it's void of the, 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 in other words, it's, the, the emphasis here is it's devo- like a corpse is devoid of life. It doesn't actually use the word dead. Now, it is true that the Alter Rebbe in explaining it asserts that this is something King David achieved. Okay, but right now we're just doing the basic thing. Like what, however it came to be this way, King David was in a state where his inclination did not exist. His, if the evil inclination is the soul, his heart would be a corpse. It was void, it was empty. Okay. So, you see that there's, like, there's already a structure the Alter Rebbe has to work within. Right? We need to figure out how we have pow- really this, ability, the, 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 this power over our emotions, our love, our fear of Hashem, at least as it relates to doing mitzvahs. And that is going to be structured by that oath to be righteous, not to be wicked. It's, we're going to have to come to some kind of understanding of how to deal with that self-image of being wicked or not being wicked, regardless of our achievements, right? And we're going to have to acknowledge that being righteous and being wicked is something more internal than simply behavior, right? It has to do with lacking an evil inclination or lacking fear of God or someone who has fear of God but still has an evil inclination, which apparently tears you in two and you need God to come to the rescue, okay? Tomorrow we will continue with these sources um, and, and then we'll move on to examining each section of Tanya in greater detail. But the idea is we're trying to understand the flow of the ideas rather than going too deep into any one particular idea. But I, I think it's important that you see that the Tanya is coming out of something. It's not just boom from heaven. Okay. Guys, before everyone leaves, we-